The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Maybe you can remember being taught about Cain and Abel and other stories from a two-dimensional primary colored felt board in Sunday school as a kid. Um, my prayer this morning and my desire is that this probably familiar story would, would jump off the page for you as it has me and become three-dimensional, become three-dimensional and, and grip us and change us. Genesis is, is, a, is a masterwork of, of literature, but beyond literature, it tells us important things. It reminds us or tells us uh, uh, where we come from. And all of the people in these stories are very human. They are real people, just like we are. I have found myself in this passage, and so have others that I've talked to. And so that's why I'm bringing it before us this morning. So let's, let's pray that we will find ourselves in this passage and that we will find someone else, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do desire, I desire that all of us would see Jesus from this passage, though he's never named. And I pray that in the sight of you, Lord Jesus, that the passage from 1 Peter 5 that Charlie just read and prayed over would, would be a a fulfilled and answered prayer today, that, that in the sight of seeing you, that we would be humbled and that humble faith would result in your smile upon us, your infinitely blessed favor. So will you please, will you please make your word clear to us? Would you make it clear and, as I said, three-dimensional, would you cause these people to not be felt-board characters, but to cause us to see how we are like them and they are like us and how they, they show us something about ourselves. We need to respond rightly to what we see about ourselves from this passage. We need to see ourselves clearly. We need to have the, the courage to, to do that, to, to look at ourselves honestly, but then we need the eyes of faith to, to see you and see what you do with what we find in ourselves. So please give my words clarity. Please fill me with your spirit. Please cause your spirit to make a connection between me and hearts, between my words and hearts, between you and hearts, actually. Please, please move in us this morning and... Uh, have mercy on us. Give us a, that broken and contrite heart that leads to a heart that is filled with joy. Real joy. Please today, make, make joy something that is not just a churchy, pastorly word, but a reality. So please come now and show yourself Glorify yourself among us here. Now we pray. Amen. 
So God creates Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, two real historical human beings, two people who had children, who had children. You can even read the family tree from Adam to Jesus in Luke. God places them in the garden to enjoy it and trust God and obey God. If they would have trusted God, He would have clothed them with royal garments of glory, and they would have reigned with Him as His sort of vice kings over all creation, over all his kingdom. But a usurper, a rebel, a rival, looking to set up his own kingdom, enters the story, Satan. This is chapter 3. The rebel has two weapons, doubt and lies. Did God really say? And the lie was that Adam and Eve could be like God without trusting and obeying God. The lie was really threefold. God is not as tough as he says he is. God is not as kind as you think he is. He's holding out on you. And God does not keep his promises. Get glory. Become like him. But you better do it yourself. What is Satan aiming at here? What's he up to? He's after the heart of Adam and Eve. At our, at our deepest point, all of us are lovers and loyalists. Lovers and loyalists. Satan fed lies to their mind to get at their hearts, to, to, to split their affections, to, to divide their loyalties. And he knows that if our, our love for God can be spoiled, then we can be lured to defect from God to his rival kingdom. That's what he's up to. And the lie has its intended effect. Eve eats, eats the forbidden fruit. Adam just watches right there, and then he eats. And the results are so human, so like us. They hide. They try to clothe themselves with their own royal garments, but it's just pathetic leaves. And Adam makes that all-too-human swing from bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to the woman you gave me is defective. That's why this happened. So much like us. God responds, chapter 3, verse 15, just as Satan said he would not. He brings the curses, ending with the curse of death. Verse 19, he brings kindness by sacrificing an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Bittersweet, not royal garments of glory, but better than leaves. He's kind. And he brings a promise, a promise that will run through the whole Bible, all the way to the cross, all the way through you and I today, all the way to the book of Revelation to the end of time. That's in chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, war, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. An offspring of Eve will crush this usurper and destroy his kingdom. He will establish God's kingdom, and he will bring life. This is why Eve is named Eve. Her name sounds like life giver. Her offspring will restore life to the world. All who live will come from 
her offspring. So it is this promise that Eve is believing and anticipating as chapter 4 opens. So I'm going to read now verses 1 through 16, but you can, you can maybe feel her excitement. She's got that promise ringing in her ears. She becomes pregnant. Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of God. Either this baby is the promised offspring, or this offspring will lead to that promised offspring. Either way, Cain or Eve thinks and believes that God is keeping his promise, and he is. Verse 2, Abel is born. Abel is a shepherd. Cain is a farmer. Both are good vocations. Nothing wrong with either one of them. Work was introduced before the fall in the garden, and work and worship were always meant to interweave with each other. Man is meant to work trusting God, worshiping God through his work, bringing glory to God through his work. Therefore, Cain and Abel each bring a sacrifice to God, each from their work. Cain, fruit of the ground, verse 3. Abel, the firstborn, notice a slight difference there, firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. God somehow shows approval for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's. Now, some say this is because Abel's sacrifice was a, was a blood sacrifice, anticipating the cross, while Cain's was, was not. 
But, but verse 2 is there to explain why each brought what, what they brought. They're, they're not operating by ceremonial rules here. They're simply worshiping God with their life's work, with their life, with a portion. What is at issue here is not the, the outward form, but the heart. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. But this, we, we read later in Hebrews, was only because he had trusted in God. He, he had faith in God. His superior sacrifice only demonstrated faith. God approved of his sacrifice because he approved of Abel based on his faith. Faith that, would, that, that mimicked, that, that pictured God's generous gift, his future generous gift of his son, the offspring of Eve. But Cain's sacrifice had the, had the outward appearance of good religion. When we strive to be like God, but without trusting and worshiping God in, in all of our life, um, we, are, we are like Cain. We become like Cain, empty and proud and arrogant. Th- this is what lies beneath his, his anger and his crestfallen countenance in verse 5. He's crestfallen and angry because he wants God approval, but not by faith in God. He wants to be like God without worshiping God. That way to be, to be holy, to be better, is bound to fail. It will always fail. To want to be like God without trusting God, without loving God. That's what Cain was up to. That was the problem. God doesn't bless it because like Cain, when we do this, we too are trying to have it both ways. Cain was trying to keep one foot in each kingdom the real kingdom and the usurper kingdom. But God does not share his kingdom with another. So the big point of this story comes in the warning of God in verses 6 and 7. God begins by asking this, this probing question, as is his want throughout the whole Bible, to expose Cain's heart. And then the warning, Cain, you think you are secure. You think you're secure by by trying to keep one foot in each kingdom. You know you need to be in this kingdom, but you don't trust me. So you're you're putting one foot in this kingdom to do it yourself. You think that makes you secure. But guess what? You're not secure. Right now, you're maybe rolling around in your mind, offing your brother because you're so angry at him. You think he's the vulnerable one. But guess what? He's the secure one. You're the vulnerable one. You're vulnerable. You're vulnerable by trying to be like me, but without me. You think that makes you safe to trust yourself and not me. But you are vulnerable. It's possible that the beginning of verse 8 means that that Cain told Abel, his brother, what God had told him. A little softening temporarily. But then, like Dad, he too swings in the opposite direction, the hard, his heart hardens, and he kills his brother. Maybe the worst sin, to betray your, your own brother and kill him. He has swung from seeking to be religious, to be approved before God, to committing the worst sin. 
The potential for that swing lies in every human heart. Verse 9, again, though, God asks questions to, to draw out the heart. Where, where Adam blame shifted, Cain is just downright defiant. Am I my brother's keeper? His pride blinds him to the, to the deep abyss that he is about to fall into. Verse 10, Abel's blood cries out to God for justice. It cries out for justice. Verse 11, God curses Abel directly, just as he did Satan in chapter 3. Adam was not cursed directly. The ground was cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin. But Satan was cursed directly, and so is Cain. Cain has chosen Satan's kingdom and rejected God's. The curse is just. Just as he spilled Abel's blood into the ground, so being a farmer, God will curse the ground and not let it produce fruit for Cain. He'll have to wander the earth to survive. God is, do you notice here, God is severe. God is stern. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Or if they do, know where it's coming from. But he is also kind. His kindness never ends throughout the entire story. Even towards the end, as Cain is is unrepentant, blind to his pride, complaining to God that his punishment is too much, God gives Cain the the mark to protect him wherever he goes. By the way, it's not a skin color. A mark is a mark. Mark means mark. The end result, verse 16, is that Cain leaves the presence of the Lord, a phrase pregnant with meaning. Cain's pride led to him being vulnerable, blinded to God's kindness, so that the story ends, Cain unrepentant, fully in the kingdom of darkness. The writer to the Hebrews says that the story is not over, that Abel's blood and his faith still speak to us. They still speak to us. And we can put it this way today, a big big point for this morning. True security and blessing are only found in the kingdom of God through whole love and loyalty to Him. True security and blessing are only found in the kingdom of God through whole love and loyalty to Him. Consider with me what this means for us. We, we need to think clearly about the, the warning and the blessing from this passage. The warning and the blessing. So the warning is this, the first point this morning. Those who try to straddle the two kingdoms are vulnerable. Those who try to straddle the two kingdoms are vulnerable. Exposed by pride to curse. One more time. Those who try to straddle the two kingdoms are vulnerable, exposed by pride to curse. Cain wanted God's smile, but not by God. His offering is not worship, just empty religion. God will always prioritize the enlargement of his kingdom, not because he's some selfish human king, but because any other rival kingdom is a lie. Life only exists in his kingdom and nowhere else. 
And it only comes through the offspring that he provides from Eve. Life comes only by faith in him. And it only exists inside of his kingdom. He brooks no rival kingdom out of love for the world. But remember that God is both stern and he is kind. He, he woos Cain and us with his kindness that we would turn from, from straddling to being fully pointed towards his kingdom. I, I, almost, I almost wrote there to, to being firmly planted in his kingdom, but none of us will be firmly, entirely, perfectly planted in his kingdom until the end of the age. So I say that, that we would be firmly pointed towards his kingdom, loyal to it, even in all of our sin and our prone to being prone to wander. What's your trajectory? Are you pursuing the glory of God, the kingdom of God by faith in God, or are you teetering? Are you wobbling between the two? That's the question of the passage. Where do your loyalties lie? If we are wise, we will learn from Cain. We will... We will watch his progression and learn from it. Watch the progression. Cain's, Cain's loves and loyalties are conflicted, but, but, but he can't see it. He's, he's teetering and about to fall into the precipice, but he's totally blind to it. So what does God do? God is kind to cause him to see it, to see his teetering. He acts to expose it. That's why he did not regard the sacrifice. And that's why he asks him questions to show, show him why he is angry and crestfallen. The underside of that, the underside of his anger and his, uh, is pride. Self-making religion, self-sufficient religion. But Cain can't be talked out of it, so he, he walks out to the field and he chooses sides. His pride blinds him. Blinds him to, to committing the very worst thing, murdering his brother. The, the, the engine of the car blows up, but it was preceded by warning lights flashing on the dashboard, flashing, flashing, angered, lowered countenance, subtle things, but flashing nonetheless. Pride, pride, pride. Why are those lights blinking, God asks. The question goes ignored. The car blows up, control is lost, and someone else very close to him is deeply hurt. Why do you think those lights are blinking in your life? Why are they blinking? The, the, the answer, regardless of the situation, is that you and I, we, we all have these conflicted loyalties. We have split loves. We, we want to be like God, but, but not by faith in God. We resist that. How do I know that? How do I know it's all of us? How do you respond when, let's say, your thoughtful comment is talked over in the Bible study? What do you do? Huh? Or, uh. How do you respond when your boss treats your contributions like they're stupid and behind what everybody else knows? How do you respond when your, your spouse subtly critiques your intelligence or your looks or your organization? Not that I would know anything about that. But <laughs> How do you respond when your friends at school subtly reject you, maybe for, for something as little as the clothes you wore yesterday? 
How do you respond when your president or your high court issues another decision that you deeply disagree with? In each situation, we may very well want a good thing, but, but that's not the problem. It's, it's what our response re- reveals. Often the, the choice is, is, comes down to either humble faith or proud self, self-solutions. Pride can sometimes look like chest-thumping, but not always. Sometimes it looks like a, just a meek turning into self. Or sometimes it looks like raging. Regardless of what it looks like, it's telling us that we love something more than we love God. That our loyalties are split, that we're, we're dangling our foot at least in this rival kingdom because we don't trust this one. We doubt We've bought into the lie. To trace this down in your own life, um, start with two things, very simple. Start with people and money. People and money. Follow the money. Follow your relationships. Uh, This has been very helpful for me. How you make your money. What's the purpose of the money you make? What... What actually is its role in your life? How do you employ employ your money? Do you pray about how you make your money, how you spend it? And ask yourself, what have you done to others, perhaps in your career, in the service of making money? Who have you neglected? Who have you walked over, cheated, hurt? We have all ignored the dashboard lights and driven on. And as you think about this, you may find that you're more vulnerable than you realize. And that's true. That's a good thing. That's what God is after. That's what God was after with Cain, to get him to wake up and say, Oh my goodness gracious, the cliff is right here. To realize that we are stalked by a real enemy, that he's looking for strays, people left unprotected by their proud wandering from the protection of faith in God's kingdom. His goal is either our assimilation or our destruction, actually both, <laughs> but he is subtle. He, he will use the world and your own flesh to keep, to keep us proud and blind. He'll use friends who don't ask probing questions but who instead just reinforce our anger and our, and our crestfallen countenance. You deserve that. You should be upset. He'll use the world's advertising and philosophies, the, the pride of this world to keep us thinking that we deserve God's favor. We deserve it. Keep going. Just try harder. It's, it's right around the corner. It's right, it's right there. And he'll employ your own thoughts against you that say God is not kind, that God is out to get you, that God is stingy and cold. He wants to keep you moving blindly past the, the kindness of God to, to see uh, sins to, or to commit sins that you never thought you would commit and to, to see them and then, and then after you commit them to just live in, in, a, in a state of condemnation and self-loathing and oh well, 
to the place where you say that there's no hope, just pain management now. Life away from the presence of God east of Eden. That's what your enemy is up to. And he is just as real as Adam and Eve were. But it all begins with split loyalties, divided love. So stop. Stop for a second. Stop and and look at God for a moment. Turn off your own thoughts and, and listen for a second to Him. Perhaps you, you do feel this vulnerability. You feel it and, and you don't know what to do with it, or the only thing you know what to do with it is just to keep doing what you've always done. Apply more self-help to it. Work harder. Think better. Learn more. Read more Christian books. But I tell you that the answer is look at God. Stop. Stop everything. Look at Him. Look at Him. See the, the sternness and the severity of God, but, but, but look at Him and see His kindness. If you are here this morning, count that alone. Here listening to this sermon, count that alone as, as the kindness of God to you. The kindness of God. And then simply believe him, but believe that he is kind. Wherever you find yourself on that, on Cain's progression, whether you find yourself, yes, I am just teetering, or no, I am in, living in the land of Nod. Wherever you are there, know that God is kind. And no, no matter how far away the land of Nod is, the moment you turn and look at God, you will find him, like the father in this the story of the prodigal son, he's already kicked up his skirt and he's sprinting towards you. God is stern, but God is kind. Look to him. He is kind. How do you know? How do you know he's kind? Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice, justice. And maybe your mind judges you and even, even cries out. Maybe your own mind even cries out for justice on yourself. My mind does that sometimes, a lot. But the writer to the Hebrews says that at the end of chapter 12 that there has been a better blood spilled to the ground and it cries out something better, far better than Abel's blood. It cries out, justice has been done. All that anyone or your own mind could, could cry out for justice upon you about has been settled, has been dealt with on the cross, on Jesus' cross, paid upon him instead of you. Justice is done, and justice will be done when he returns. God is stern, and God is kind. And it cries out something better besides justice is done. It cries out grace, forgiveness. All of my kingdom that I am bringing is now yours. All of it. It's yours. It's yours. All, the, all of the smile of the Father upon this glorious Son is yours. All that is His is yours. Is not to be earned is 
It is if you will only fear him. He is not a tame God, to quote C.S. Lewis. He is not a tame God. He alone holds your soul in his hands. But trust him. He is a kind God. And live for his glory. Live for his kingdom. You may not be able to picture all that that means right now, but it means trust and surrender. Blessed surrender of your pride of all your life. And start again with money and relationships. Start with how you make your money. Start with how you employ your money. Start with its role in your life. And start with the people you know, your employees, your spouse, your kids. Turn, your, turn yourself to, to relate to them, not for your own gain, but for His fame, His kingdom, His glory. For His kingdom. For His kingdom. Why? Because when you turn like this, when, when you turn away from yourself to, and look to Him, you will find that he gives you all of his kingdom. All that is his is now yours. And you will begin to live a life that is generous. A life of generous worship like Abel's. Because you are secure in his kingdom. If you have never trusted in Christ like this, I implore you, do so. Trust in him and turn Commit to live for His kingdom, for His glory, and it will be to the eternal satisfaction of your soul. You may not understand 90% of that. Turn. Trust. But you might be thinking, Abel trusted God and he was still murdered. Um, what do I do with that? There are still real threats that pursue us. Sometimes they catch us. Though we trust in Christ and live for His glory and His kingdom, we still feel and are very vulnerable in a sense. And the sense of this only increases as we age. For some of us, death itself is not a far-off potential, but it is a very present-tense possibility. For some of us, the worst thing we have feared in life has actually happened. Or right now, you can visualize it if, if certain circumstances fell into place. You, you could see it happening. We have many reasons to feel vulnerable. We're human. We're human. And we are still prone, even... Even for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we, we are still prone to being controlled in our actions by that, by that feeling of vulnerability. Controlled by that instead of the pursuit of God's glory and His kingdom. Just the, for instance, just the act of getting married feels vulnerable. You know? When you marry somebody, you are handing over a lot of power to another sinful human being and vice versa. Vulnerable. And we can still act out of that feeling in, in anger and irrational behavior. 
We can, we can act on our feelings of political and social vulnerability as our, as our country moves in a different direction, and we, we argue with people instead of loving them. The result is that we can become seen at the office for our political stances, not for the name of Christ. We can become controlled by our feelings of being vulnerable, and, and this can detour us from loving God and spouse and friend and co-workers, detour us from glorifying God and living for His kingdom right where we live, diverted, controlled by this feeling. So what do we do? What do we do? This is the second point. Follow Abel, looking to your king, secure in his kingdom. Follow Abel, looking to your king, secure in his kingdom. Um, We should talk about repentance again right here. After all, the, the, the responses that I just talked about they, they demonstrate that the, the war between these, these two kingdoms is still going on inside of us. Us, all of us. It will go on until the very end. And, and we do need to, to slow down and consider how we are responding when we feel vulnerable. Our responses reveal these, these split loyalties and these divided loves. And, and when we see them, we must bring them to the cross, these, these sinful responses. We must bring them to the cross, and, and there is plentiful forgiveness, plentiful redemption with our God. Praise be His name. He generously gives forgiveness and mercy and help to us. But if we stay here, we stay here looking at ourselves. This can turn into a kind of a, an idol hunting, navel gazing. You know, like we, we, our, 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 our Christian walk just simply becomes looking at ourselves. Still, if all we're doing is looking for the idols that are trafficking out of our hearts. Yes, look. Yes, observe when they come out. But Abel points to a different way. Turn with me to to the book of Hebrews, towards the end of your Bible. Um, Hebrews 11. Turn or click or tap or whatever to Hebrews 11. The entire book of Hebrews essentially says, Jesus has come. He is the promised one. He's real. It's real. All of the promises, they were, it was, it's real. From, from, from the garden onward, they're true. Jesus is here. He is real and He is better. Better. Better than whatever you feel vulnerable to losing. Jesus is better. And in Hebrews 11, the the writer trots out a a number of people from the Old Testament who give us this this very same testimony. They all died not having seen Jesus, but they testify to us today, it is true. It was worth it. My faith was worth it. The hoping, the waiting, the suffering, it was worth it. It was worth it. 
Abel, verse 4, is one of them. He still testifies today to you and I. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He still speaks today. I I entered God's kingdom, he says, by faith alone. And God may be righteous enough to enter, not not on my sacrifice, but on the basis of that faith alone. And I, didn't, I couldn't quite see it at the time. I didn't have the imagination to see it. But that faith was, was centered on Christ, and he came, and it happened. And I'm in the kingdom, and I have it all. It's real. It's real. The kingdom that I trusted in, though I could not see it, is real, and it is full of reward. Reward that, that was worth losing everything for. It is the pearl of great price. I see it now. I, I wish you could. I wish you could. Trust me. It's real. So he says to you and to I, live for his kingdom because it is so worth it. Live for it. Pursue it. Go after it. <clears throat> All of the kingdom is yours and mine. Everything that, we, everything that we search for in this life, the kingdom of Jesus gives it to us. Oh, this is terrible grammar. Better. <laughs> His kingdom is better. So we need to believe that. We need to, to live in that, right? In those, in those moments of vulnerability. We need to live in that. By the way, I, I want to say as a side note, um, when I say vulnerability, um, there might, you, you might think that I'm implying all moments of vulnerability. There are certain things that we get afraid of and that we feel vulnerable from because we should feel fear about them and feel vulnerable beneath them. If, if somebody is hurting you physically, you should feel fear about that. You should feel vulnerable about that. And you should seek out God's means of help in that. For instance, calling in authority. So I just want to make that very clear here. Do it. <laughs> Authorities are put in place by God as, as his means of grace to you for help. So take him up on those. <clears throat> But by the same token, we must say and we need to believe that, that all of God's kingdom is yours and it's mine and we are secure in it. So even if death gets me, I am secure in his kingdom. So there's no need to live out of, of these feelings of vulnerability, to be controlled by them. But I have to say, there is something about um, the, the concept of the kingdom that comes up short for me. Um, and stay with me in case this sounds heretical for a second. Um, there's something about it that I personally just don't have the imagination for. I, I can't quite, I can't see it. I, I read it, but I can't, I can't see always how, how this is better, how I how I am more secure 
in that kingdom. I am finite, and I, and I feel it. I, I feel it sometimes when I think and I try to grab hold of the kingdom. I try to, I try to trust what I just said, and I, it feels like I'm coming up short. Um, but then something really remarkable comes up in Hebrews. I think the writer to the Hebrews thinks the same way. Because right after the hall of faith in chapter 11, where all of these, he, he lists all of these people who, are, who say what I just said. It's real. Trust it. Believe it. Pursue it. He says this, chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people that I just talked about, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, very next thing that occurs to the writer is look to Jesus. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In order to see the kingdom clearly, we need to look to the kingdom's king. And as we see the king more clearly, we will see the kingdom clearly, more clearly here and now. What do I mean by this? I mean three things. I, th I think of three things here. The first one is this. Meditate on His promises to you. Meditate on His promises to you, remembering that Satan works to, to cause doubt about them. And start, you might start, there are many promises, you might start with his very last words to us. Of all the things that he could say when he was leaving, you know, someone's last words are very important. What were his last words? I am with you always, Matthew 28. No, that's not true. Behold, look, see, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you no matter how you feel, no matter what situation of vulnerability you, you are in, I am with you always. Ruminate on every word. Faith is believing that no matter what may come tomorrow or today, that He will be present. He will be present with you in it, and He will give you His Spirit. He will give you grace to endure whatever comes tomorrow, What? Ever it is. He will give you grace to endure still pursuing the kingdom. He will give you grace to endure glorifying Him. No matter what may come, He will be with you always, always. He will be with you. He will bring more of His kingdom to you so that you may respond with the fruit of the Spirit controlled by the Spirit, not controlled by your feelings, your fears. I'm with you always. So secondly, take that promise, take that promise, and, and in your specific situation, take that and pray, leaning hard into that promise. Where, where do you feel vulnerable? Where is that? Pray. 
pray, but, but pray that He would be glorified through you in that. Pray that, that, that you would be a, that, that He would enlarge His kingdom in you and through you in that. And ironically, counterintuitively, the result, that the fruit that God will bring through His Spirit to you in that situation is peace, shalom, peace. So pray. Pray and look. Pray and look. Our problem is that we don't look to see him move. We don't endure in prayer in the first place. But then when we do endure in prayer, we so often don't look to see his answers. Pray and look. Look to see him move. The, the, the funny thing about the generosity of God is that when he, when he moves according to our prayers and, and provides, he also gives more grace. He increases our faith. So as you, as you see him move, as you see him provide, as you see him enlarge his kingdom in you and through you and provide peace, and you say, huh, where'd that come from? Who was that that just said that, did that, or didn't say that, or didn't do that? <clears throat> he gives more faith. He gives more faith, and, and your faith will grow in the fact of his presence. His promise will actually become real to you. And then this, this will empower the third thing. That is, I, I exhort all of us, commit to move towards his glory, towards his kingdom, despite your vulnerabilities, in the face of your feelings. As he gives you faith, you will grow in this. He will do it. He will do it. You will begin to act fruitfully in situations where you previously were controlled by anger or fear. You will begin to move forward where you previously retreated. Or you will be silent where you previously attacked. But I think most fundamentally, you will learn when you are faced with being vulnerable to do nothing. To first do nothing and look to Jesus. Again, I'm excluding those times that I said earlier where do, do something now. Like that. I'm not talking about those times. I'm talking about when you feel excluded at the office, at the school, in your family, when you feel threatened. Our biggest problem is that we've been trained to recoil at every feeling of vulnerability. We proudly say we don't deserve to feel this way, so we reflectively kick against it. I don't deserve this. I deserve this. Who does that sound like? But you will know that you are maturing in Christ by the Spirit when you can stop and, and do nothing at first and just let that vulnerability sit there. Just let it sit there. And then you take a step back, and instead of moving this way, and there's a groove drilled this way from all the thousands of times in your life that you've moved this way, just reflexively, and you'll take, take a step back, and by the Spirit, you'll pivot, and you'll turn, and you'll, 
you'll cut across the grain of, of your feelings and you'll move not out of self-protection, but out of generous love to God for His glory and for His kingdom in that situation. You will know when you're growing, when you pivot, and instead of complaining in prayer about the person who, who kills your reputation with, with slander on the internet, you, you stop for, for maybe just a brief moment and you pray for them. You pray for their good. You will know that the Spirit is moving in you when you stop and, and pray for your coworkers and, 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 and even generously, it could be just sharing with them what you've learned to do well in your own job instead of thinking about how to win conversations over social issues with them. You will know that the Spirit is moving when you, when you move across the grain of your fears about your spouse's weakness and, and their habits and you begin to pray for them and show generous love to them. And as God answers your prayers and, and rewards that movement, that movement of faith, you will, you will see the kingdom. You will see it. You will see it right there. You will see him move in you and through you. You will see the kingdom coming. Not, not perfectly, not entirely, but you will see it coming. And it will be beautiful. And it will make you want more. More of it. You'll see the kingdom. And as you see it, you will think it's beautiful. And then what? You will gratefully, gratefully worship him right there in your vulnerabilities, your feelings of vulnerability. They're still right here. They haven't gone away. But before your enemies, you worship God. God will be glorified. I mean, don't you want that? Don't you, don't you want to glorify God right where you're at? In very human ways that, that other people can see and touch and feel. You will gratefully worship just like Abel. So I pray that you and I will turn. You and I will turn and ever be turning from our conflicted loyalties and divided loves. And more than that, that we'd look to our king we would look to our king and that Hebrews 12, uh, 28 and 29, the result, the result would be that we would be grateful for receiving a kingdom, that we would see that kingdom and see, oh, I'm, I've got it. I, I can taste a little bit of it right here. I've got it. A kingdom that cannot be shaken and that we would be a people that would offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, reverence and awe at His grace. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Amen. We now move to communion. If the men could come forward. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 
943-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.